0: hello and welcome to the eurasian knot i'm your host sean Gillery,
1: and i'm your fellow co-host Rusana novikova
0: yeah everybody Rusana is back so as you know and we'll get to where Rusana has been in a moment but as you know the eurasian knot is sponsored by the center for russian east european eurasian studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and you patrons out there who are so generous to give us contributions to help us keep this podcast going and do some things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So if you'd like to help us out and become a patron, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or to Euronaut.org and find that button and give us some loot. So, Rusana, you're back. Why don't you tell the listeners about where you've been in doing the last couple of
1: months? Oh, where haven't I been? <laughs> well, I slowly made my way back to California from the far east of Russia. I honestly don't remember where I was when we talked last, but I must have been maybe in Kamchatka or Magadan.
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Yeah, where I was doing field work, And then my family and I, we went to Moscow to see my aunt, and then we traveled to my parents. We actually spent about two weeks 30 miles away from the ukrainian border my partner was not happy about it because we had like war airplanes flying over our head every day multiple times a day so that was a bit unnerving and then we had to make our way further south to georgia because my son was born in russia but he has a right to American citizenship, but he doesn't have American citizenship and all the embassies in Russia don't work anymore, even for US citizens. So we had to stay in Tbilisi for a while, waiting for his passport to
0: be ready. And what was it like in Georgia?
1: That was really interesting. My first day, we were on our way to the embassy and I was sitting in a cab, just tired from all the traveling and everything, just kind of like glancing on the streets, and I was surprised to see so much street art and so many graffitis on the walls everywhere that kind of hate messages against Russians, like Russians go home, Russians, you're war criminals, all sorts of nasty things. Well, part of me understood where it was coming from, Obviously, Georgia and Georgians are against the war. They support Ukraine. Also, I bet a lot of Georgians are unhappy about the influx of Russians in Tbilisi and other cities that has driven prices way... Like It has driven prices through the roof. I mean, some Georgians had to move, for displaced because they could no longer... I mean, a typical case of gentrification driven by all these Moscovites and Petersburgans with money. But at the same time... At the same time, another part of me was, I wasn't offended, but I was a bit frustrated because I didn't have anything to do with it, and uh, I don't support the war. And yet, these messages are so indiscriminate. You know, it's like, if you're Russian, if you speak Russian, you're bad, pretty much. And so it was strange to be accused for something that you are not responsible for. I mean, maybe I could have done more by protesting, by getting involved in direct action while I was in Russia. But other than that, yeah, it was just strange.
0: I've been hearing things about, you know, because there are so many Russians. And of course, you know, if you're Russian and you can relocate to Tbilisi, you have the means to do that. So it's a particular class that are going going there. And I've heard a lot of kind of disgruntled views of Georgians because of the influx of Russians, for the reasons that you just mentioned. so. But the graffiti is interesting. I didn't know the dissatisfaction was that vocal.
1: Oh, yeah. And there are also places where, for example, I was walking in the old city, and there was this community space or a restaurant I couldn't quite figure it out but there was a note like do not speak Russian do not address our staff in Russian only use Georgian and if you don't speak Georgian please use English this is not your country and I felt like I was ripped off multiple times and I felt like part of it was because I was speaking Russian (laughs) like people take advantage of you yeah
0: wow yeah Unfortunately, you know, it seems that this kind of, uh, I don't want to go so far as to say collective punishment, but maybe collective responsibility is so prevalent, it seems, in all of the unfortunate conflicts that are going on at the moment.
1: But I don't want to say that, I mean, I didn't experience any animosity or hostility, and I had a few quite nice encounters and lovely chats with local people. Actually... Yeah, with some Georgians and also spoke to a ton of Russians who moved to Tbilisi. So personally, I didn't feel like, I never felt in danger or I never felt insecure, but just the city landscape was made inhospitable.
0: Yeah, just kind of like it paints the color of the atmosphere that makes you wonder, maybe, is this person going to say something et cetera, et cetera.
1: Also, I don't speak Georgian, so I don't know what people were saying behind my back, you know, and that's stuff. That's right. <laughs> of
0: course. <laughs> that, that's the other thing, right? <laughs> wow. That's an interesting experience because like I said, I, you know, you've been hearing various reports about where Russians are relocating and what the local populations, of course, how they feel about all of this. And it's not surprising that people who are refugees, and that's a very broad term. I'm, I'm using it in a very, very broad sense. They encounter animosity wherever they go, right? But I think that the fact that, you know, because of the war and Russia being the aggressor in the war, I would imagine made things a bit heightened.
1: Yes, and I feel that, at least in Tbilisi, my understanding was that it led to the diaspora being quite insulated from the rest of the Georgian society. Like Russians, they go to Russian restaurants, Russian bars. They have events with... Russian artists. So it's very much like, even, so I spoke to a few people who work in Tbilisi and they don't speak Georgian, right? And they've been there for a couple years now and they just say they don't need to because they work for people who are Russian owners.
0: Yeah, in that sense, it's kind of similar to any kind of immigrant experience, right? I mean, you know, you have find all of these pockets of communities where they're very insular. And they don't really desire or want or to integrate, and and, and that makes a lot of sense in in some respects.
1: And it's interesting because I feel like when Russians go to the States or to Europe, they very much desire to integrate (laughs) and learn the language and be part of the community and have the same rights, et cetera. But in Georgia, it just seemed like people, well, again, I don't want to generalize, but the people I met, they didn't view Georgia as a permanent home where they see themselves settling in the future. It's kind of like a temporary, and we can debate about how temporary is temporary, but maybe because of that, people don't like go and learn Georgian. It's also a very difficult language to learn.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for the update. I hope listeners are interested to hear where you've been and the things you've experienced, um, especially since it speaks to so many issues that we tend to cover on, on the podcast a lot of times. So this episode... Uh, is with Eric Scott, who is a historian from University of Kansas, and he has this book on defectors. So why don't we jump into that? Why don't you uh, introduce him for us?
1: Absolutely. Eric Scott is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Kansas. He is the author of Familiar Strangers, the Georgian Diaspora and the Evolution of Soviet Empire, and the editor of the Russian Review. His new book is Defectors, How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Eric Scott. So, Eric, it's nice to talk to you.
0: I wanted to start by asking you about the relationship between this new book you have and your first book. And so your last book was called Familiar Strangers. And it looked at the Georgian diaspora in the USSR, a wonderful book, I have to say. Now, how did you get from there to writing this book, Defectors, How the Illicit Fight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World? What's the
2: story behind that? Thank you, Sean, for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. I'm always a big fan of the work that you're doing with Rosanna. And it's really a pleasure to be back. I think the last time was talking about my first book. So Familiar Strangers is really a story of internal migration, which was something that was quite, I think, significant for understanding the Soviet Union and for really forging the Soviet Union as a multi-ethnic state. And the second book really follows the migration across international borders, which is something that is perhaps better known or people think they might know more about what these Cold War borders were like. But it's really something that I found more complicated and more interesting than I previously believed. There's also, I, I think, a more practical story too, right? Because part of this was about the materials I'd found. And so when I was in Georgia, actually, finishing up work on my first book in the KGB archives there in, in Tbilisi, I came across this hijacking case. And it was the story of the Soviet Union's first successful hijacking, which took place in October of 1970. And, and that was a really interesting case because it was a father and son, Soviet Lithuanians, who had moved about around the Soviet Union. They had been in Central Asia. The father was involved in underground trading. And then they hijacked this plane from Batumi on Georgia's Black Sea coast to Turkey. And that case really connected the stuff I was looking at this internal migration with this external exit, unauthorized exit. And it also, confounded my ideas of what defectors were because the pair posed as defectors. This is how they describe themselves, but they seized the plane violently. And in the process, the flight attendant was killed. And so this case, I think, really provided an entree into this world of defectors. And it was really an important foundational case in thinking about this and connecting internal movement to external movement and it's thinking about how these categories of defectors and defection were constructed in the Cold War.
0: A topic like defectors, right? It's such a Cold War issue. It feeds into all of that kind of spy versus spy intrigue, propaganda. What's the stuff that you I wouldn't you don't you'd probably find like documentaries on the History Channel. Going into this topic as a professional historian, How did you approach this issue of defectors with all of the baggage that at least I see it comes with?
2: Yeah, so I think the sensationalism around defectors and defection is part of the reason why it's not really been studied, I think, comprehensively, and why historians have tended to shy away from it. I think treated uncritically, it can reproduce some assumptions about the Cold War that there was a sort of hard line dividing East and West. And certainly it's the stuff of spy novels and films, including a lot of the stuff that I grew up with growing up at the end of the Cold War. But there are a couple of things that really pushed me to it. One is there's been some really interesting work done by other scholars on borders in recent years. And I think we're beginning to think more about borders with the end of the Cold War and with all this sort of ideas about globalization. Borders receded into the background a bit, we emphasized transactional flows and Globalization. But borders are really important. And it's not just the historiography that tells us this, it's also in events of the past 15, 20 years, up to the present, where we see people held behind borders, immobile rather than mobile, all of the ways in which borders really matter. And so I began to sort of see how this could be done. And I also, I think, in a way, I leaned into some of this sensationalism because I think that's part of the story is how this narrative is created and constructed. And I really see it as mutually constituted by the interchange between the criminalization of exit and the strategic encouragement of departure by the U.S. and its allies, and the way that these migrants really navigate this and try to frame their migration stories into these narratives with varying degrees of success. So I read a lot of defector memoirs. I read spy novels. I looked at spy novels, not only ones from the u.s and its allies but also you know there's a soviet genre of spy fiction and semi-fictionalized accounts and so that became a big part of the story right and sort of defection as a narrative and the ways in which defector memoirs are following some of the same script throughout and the ways in which that script allows people to be mobile in ways that they might not have imagined in ways that are actually hard to conceive of today when Generally, migrants are free to leave youth, but are not always wanted by other countries. But it's also rather constraining. right? And so I tempered that with a lot of work in KGB archives and in, in archives across state borders, so in U.S., U.K., in Europe, and private collections and interviews to try to get a fuller picture of what was happening.
1: Since you started talking about the border, I wanted to jump in with my question about the... well. I wonder if you could tell us a little more in detail how the Soviet border operated and if it was different from the way that borders operated in capitalist countries. And perhaps it's like I'm piling three questions to one. So you feel free to choose any. And how did the Soviet border evolve because of defection?
2: Soviet borders are really, I use... Kind of the plural, because it's operating differently in different settings and it's operating differently over time. And this, I think, is something that a lot of scholars have found is the border is not just a place or a thing, but it's also a process. And i really focused on this in the Cold War period. And I think there's some really distinct things that set the border apart in the Cold War period that make defection really significant and some really key ways in which defection helps build the border. And so. First of all, I think one of the things that's really particular about the Soviet border in the Cold War is the emphasis on restraining movement out of the Soviet Union. This was a concern and, and there were defenses set up in the 20s and 30s to do this, but not on the scale that was achieved in the Cold War. So this was really a border that was about not only preventing external enemies from entering, which was a major preoccupation in the 1920s and 30s with the spy mania and concerns about enemies uh, infiltrating into the Soviet Union, but it was about keeping people in. It was also, the Soviet border was one part of what I see as a global mobility regime that was orchestrated by Moscow, or they attempted to orchestrate the whole thing, and this involved coordination with Warsaw Pact allies, but also really played out in a lot of border spaces, far beyond the the territory of the Warsaw Pact, so at sea, around embassies, on airplanes, in refugee camps, where the Soviet Union used a lot of different tactics and tools to try to not only restrain movement, but also bring people back to the Soviet Union to retrieve people. And this was done not only through traditional border enforcement mechanisms, but also by participating in conversations around international law and really trying to put a Soviet imprint on international law, governing these spaces beyond the state borders. And you do see this evolution over time. You also, I think there's a question of scale because if you look up close at any one part of the border, and particularly if you focus on the KGB documents, they emphasize all the risks and all the problems that are happening at the border and all the ways in which. There are cases of escape or cases of people trying to flee. And of course, there's some reasons why the KGB maybe played up some of these figures, right? So they could get support for border reinforcements or so they could build up their own careers, casting themselves as defenders of the border against great risks. When in fact, these borders were rather dull places where not a whole lot happened most of the time. But if you sort of pull back from that, I think it's important to remember that this border Generally, did restrain most people. Right, It limited defections to only a few hundred each year, in most cases. And I think this is really important to think about when you think about a mobility regime, as it's really all the people who are sort of moving within that regime, not just the few that cross it. The other thing I look at a lot is the Soviet border in its global context. And so, I, I definitely want to emphasize that this is not the first time or the only time that borders are trying to keep people in. This is a longer term end of statecraft, but this is a preoccupation of the Soviet border. And that's also a preoccupation that is really forged by the U.S. defective program, which encourages departure in some really significant ways. It targets these borders, forces the Soviets to take stricter measures to restrain exit. And so the border is also a dialogue between East and West that really centers on these migrants.
1: I know it's beyond the scope of your book, but would you say that something similar is happening today with the growing tension between the so-called collective West and Russia? In the sense that the Russian government is also taking measures to seal the border and restrain the flow of people outside the country, let's say, because of mobilization or because people don't agree with current politics and the war and they want to leave the country. I mean, I know it's kind of like, not the focus of your research, but just maybe you have some thoughts about it because you
2: thought about the borders for so long. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at contemporary Russia and to think about this. I haven't seen anything approaching the limits on exit that that were imposed during the Cold War and having concern about men who might be mobilized or are mobilized to fight fleeing the countries is not really particularly distinct, right, to Russia or to Eastern Europe. But there are echoes of this. There are concerns among Russian citizens that greater and greater exit restrictions could be imposed on them. And when you had this sort of initial wave of flight after Russia's full-scale invasion was launched and after what was described as partial mobilization, but was more haphazard mobilization and rather not partial in some ways, there were these concerns that the border is going to be sealed. And so I think there is that memory. That's really significant. And I think the Russian state is operating in a longer-term perspective about thinking about the mobility of its citizens, thinking about who it can move around and how and why and, and the ways in which it does so though. And I also think the state's relationship to its emigration is also one that is, is very much coming from the Cold War context and sort of seeing it as a potential risk. And this was really a, a constant. of so the Soviet experience was really not allowing people to leave because they could be essentially weaponized by the Soviet Union's foes. And by existing immigrant groups that were indeed extremely anti-Soviet, in some ways more anti-Soviet than the U.S. government that danced with them, but also tried to distance themselves from them. And so I think in some ways you seek some continuities there, but I would say post-Soviet Russia, contemporary Russia is still in many ways has not imposed the same kind of exit restrictions we saw in the Cold War. And we can talk more about why that is, whether the Soviet effort was doomed or not, that was one of the things I was thinking of was. Could a state have' maintained these exit controls, and were they compatible with globalization? And one of the big findings of the book is that I'd think these limits on mobility are generally compatible with globalization, and you know, the Soviet border fell apart for other reasons, crumbled from within, rather than just succumbed to external pressures. I think it would have adapted, they would have allowed perhaps more outward movement, but I think this idea that globalization means the free movement of people is really a flawed one. And I think as long as capital and labor can get to where states and companies want it to go, it can and often does include limits on the movement of people.
0: I want to step back and talk about this term defector, because I was struck at, I think in your introduction, you say that the term itself really exploded in the early Cold War and then disappeared for the most part, at the end of the Cold War. So what is a defector? What is this term supposed to mean? Is it just a Cold War term?
2: So it's not just a Cold War term, but I think it has a particular Cold War meaning. And that really gathers steam. I looked at this in just my own reading and then using Google Ngrams in multiple languages and you see this giant spike right after the Second World War. And this continuation through the 80s and then a sudden decrease in the early 90s. And I found this too in, you know, in my own teaching on the Cold War. I think I assumed my students knew at least the popular idea of what a defector was. And that's not the case. And the meaning that I think is most prevalent in the Cold War. There are various shades to this meaning. But the crux of it is really that this is unauthorized exit viewed as ideological choice. So there's two parts of that. The one is this is created because exit is criminalized and exit is constructed in a way that it's seen as an ideological break. So leaving in this unauthorized way is interpreted as a political and ideological and even psychological break. And so that is really, I think, the meaning that is most prevalent. It's a definition that I think rests not only on the policies of the Soviet Union as allies, but also the way in which this movement is interpreted by the rest of the world. And it's a meaning that works in the various languages which this term plays out, through which there, again, there are some shades of meaning and some differences, but most of them involve some kind of idea of white crossing to the other side, jumping to the other side. And so I see it as a migration event, but as a migration event that's read through a certain ideological filter. And there are debates about its meaning, too. There's debates about who can be included in this. I think there's a constant effort to try to narrow it, particularly into the part of the U.S. and its allies, which don't want unfettered migration from the Soviet Union. Now, this is very clear from the beginning. It's not stated publicly, but in all the classified documents that I found in the National Security Council, and the CIA, the State Department, and make it very clear, we do not want more than a handful of people fleeing Perhaps from the Soviet Union we might encourage mass flight, but from the satellite states we do not want mass flight, and that will encourage this, knowing that the Soviet Union will restrict it. And at times when the flight reaches larger numbers, there's actually a real crisis around this, and you see that the tensions underlying this program that you're encouraging flight, but you don't really want lots of migrants flooding into Europe, and particularly into the U.S. The U.S. is sort of There's a through line where they're encouraging exit, but they want to recital people in Europe or South America or Canada or Australia. So there's a tension there as well. Of course, those fleeing try to position themselves as defectors because this is a relatively privileged group of migrants. And the US government stresses two things within this framework of unauthorized exit as as ideological choice. One is one that you might expect, and this is more of a constant thing that exists before and after the Cold War, which is that. These are people who are valued because they have intelligence value. They have information that they can trade and share, classified information. And these are your high-ranking KGB officers, embassy officials, and so on. The other part is about psychological exploitation. This is the term that's used at the time. This is not my term. So psychological exploitation means that the stories of, of their flight the things these people say can be used in the psychological and propaganda battle between the socialist and capitalist camps. And this, I think, is particularly interesting because this is a way in which you are everyday person with no access to classifying Soviet information, and some of the people in my book are school teachers, laborers, a number of people who don't have a uh, fixed occupation in the Soviet Union, who plead in these dramatic ways, and their stories become valuable for the psychological war. But they don't have any intelligence value. And so in this way, the very means of their escape uh, becomes really significant to their framing as defector.
0: Looking all through this material and the, the use of defectors for a variety of propaganda purposes, like you, I remember these movies... These Cold War movies about defectors and they're very heroic people and they're all of this stuff. Did I, From what you just said, though, I'm detecting that there was a lot of kind of cynicism. Is that a, a correct way to put it, that there's cynical use of these people and their stories and their experiences for the larger struggle?
2: I wouldn't describe them the way the people themselves are using this framework as cynical, because I think it's just it's human, right? It's human. People move for a variety of different reasons, and there's lots of different motivations and complex motivations and levels of motivation and pushing full factors. But there was, in I think, a strict sense of the word, a cynical use of defectors by the authorities on both sides of, of the Cold War, and. I would argue that this is the case because you can see what's said publicly and the press conferences that are held when defectors arrive in the West, and the memoirs that they write, or are sometimes ghostwritten for them. The public statements, the language around this, is the ways in which this is framed as a story of escape from so-called socialist captivity, or even if they go back to the Soviet Union if they're brought back or encouraged to return, stories they tell about being fooled by the or lords of the West and having the sense of revelation that they had been fooled and returning to the true faith. And you have bad on the one hand, but then you have classified discussions of defector motivations in the CIA's closed journal, Studies and Intelligence, which was a very important source. And then there's an equivalent in the study that's put out by the KGB's higher school. And their analysis of defector motivations are so different from what's being said publicly and actually quite similar to what the CIA journalists saying is quite similar to the KGB journalists saying. They're talking about personal problems, psychological problems, career conflicts, family conflicts, egotistical behaviors. I mean, this is a term that's used on both sides of the Iron Curtain to talk about these defectors. And so it is in a way cynical that at least the intelligence officers involved by the late 50s, uh, have their own take on why people are doing what they're doing. But publicly, the story is very different.
1: I wanted to unwind, flip back to the beginning of the book. Before you start talking about defection, you talk about displaced people. And in that chapter, you write that displacement camps were one of the most fiercely con- contested spaces in the early period of the Cold War. Could you explain to us why?
2: That was something that really came out of my research because there is a really uh, rich and growing historiography on displacement or repatriation. But in thinking about the longer term trajectory of defection, I really found its origins in the camps in some ways, or there's some sort of really important pieces of its beginnings in the camp. And the Second World War, as has been documented, is the largest migration event in Europe's history. And and there are so many reasons for displacement that include forced flight, chaotic movement, and people being captured as prisoners of war, people being sent to work in Germany against their will as Osterweiters. The uprooting of populations for a number of reasons. People who fled the, the Soviet Union's foundation and ended up in, in East Central Europe and then fled again. And so you have a range of different people in these camps, millions of people. And you have many different groups claiming to speak on their behalf. The Allied governments, the Soviet government and its emergent allies, emigrate organizations, international organizations, relief organizations. And and I found that there's this really early kind of chaotic period in which people are not sure how to these people or how to think about them. And really early on, too, there's an effort to begin categorizing and sorting them. So this is generally what states want to do to migrants, right, is they want to regularize their movement and put them in categories and treat them differently depending on which categories they fall into. And this is a wide-scale effort, and there's lots of different ways in which people are sorted by nationality, by ideological disposition in some cases, by what they did during the war or their reasons for displacement. And in this early debate, you begin to have this framing that's really championed, I think, most aggressively by emigrate groups that are in Western Europe and the U.S. that are really opposed to the Soviet Union that begin to frame displacement as a choice particularly after the initial Soviet repatriation effort, that these people are there because they chose to flee communism, that they opposed communism and to valorize them as brave people, because there was a lot of of suspicion swirling around displaced people as potential collaborators or as ideologically suspect people. And this was not only on the Soviet side, this was also on the Western side. And so they began pushing this idea that these are people who fled because these are the brave people. And these are the people who made an ideological choice. And that framing is sort of proposed and begins to take hold. And then I think it's really cemented. In my first chapter, I looked at Viktor Kravchak, who was a Soviet official who fled Wall Station in Washington, D.C., towards the end of the war. And he uses these DPE displaced persons from the Soviet Union, as truth-tellers. He's put on trial He's charged with libel, and it's described as a trial of the century. It happens in this Paris courtroom where he's facing down these Soviet officials. And instead of bringing leading scholars, he brings in these ordinary Soviet people, right? These sort of people from the DP camps who can tell what he sees as the truth of the Soviet system. And so they would really become an important source of information, as seen as truth tellers, They become a a group that's really studied a lot. The foundations of American Sovietology are really rooted in things like the Harvard project and the Soviet social system, where they interview displaced people and also increasingly defectors. Because what happens is you have post-war flight and the post-war migrants are ending up sometimes in the same displaced persons camps. And so I think it's interesting how this term emerges and it's interesting in some ways how different it is from the idea of displacement because it emphasizes choice and it valorizes migrants in a way that I think is really significant for their subsequent journeys. And then also, I think, provide some of the institutional basis for thinking about settling and resettling people who are fleeing the Soviet Union and its allies. But they begin really laying out sort of what a defector is in their own guidance in the late 40s, or early 50s. And they talk about some of these groups, including Kravchenko, as really influential in setting U.S. policy around the issue.
0: I found it interesting, really fascinating, actually, the role of psychology and trying to understand these people who defected, their motivations, their, of course, you get the Cold War idea of them being brainwashed. You had this weird, strange psychology thing around the fact that Russians swaddle their kids. (laughs) It's stuff that I've heard before in other places, and it's really interesting. So, can you talk about the role of psychologists in this defector program?
2: Yeah, it's something that really came up out of the sources, including you know the swaddling hypothesis, which actually comes up in the book because a defector is being interviewed by a U.S. intelligence official, and they're asking and the person is a Soviet Russian, and they're being asked about swaddling and the role it plays in the psychological development of homeo-sovieticus. The person they're asking, the defector, is so offended by this idea that swaddling is somehow warping the development of Soviet citizens or, or making them somehow infantilized that he writes a whole report, what he calls Russian national character, that pushes back against this crudity. Western psychology and talks about the role that's played by history. It's like a 17-page screen, It's a right? screen, <laughs> and it's you know, the, sort of not what, what Western intelligence wants, right? They sort of want the answers to the questions they're asking, but they're kind of impressed by the effort. But yeah, this comes up there. So there's a lot of psychology at play. And part of it is it's a sort of mid-century moment in Western Europe and the U.S. where Freudian psychiatry and psychoanalysis is really having a moment. And it sort of comes out of the wartime and there's an effort to analyze and link the micro processes in people's brains to larger political formations. On the Soviet side, I think a lot more could be done to think about the Soviet use of psychology because they're very critical of Freud, but they end up drawing a lot of the same conclusions and they're also using this to try to analyze and understand the behavior of migrants. So why people flee, why are some people predisposed to fleeing? How can this be prevented, right? By using psychology, this is not to speak about the punitive use of psychiatry, the more cynical use of psychiatry to punish dissidents. This is, I'm talking about a, what seems to be at least a more sincere attempt to understand motivation so you can prevent things from happening. And so there, there is this really interesting moment where you have these psychologists and psychiatrists on both sides of the Cold War divide really trying to work out their theories around these people's experiences that they're interviewing and trying to create models of the Soviet citizen who's likely to flee or the Soviet citizen who's unlikely to flee. And there's just a lot of really interesting stuff here. In some ways, I thought it was interesting that so much of this is happening in connection with the intelligence agencies. And so you have this fusion of academic expertise and operatives, intelligence, tactics, and operations. And this, I think, is also really a key Cold War phenomenon. It's this sort of fusing of academic and intellectual knowledge and intelligence operations. And psychology is one of the ways in which you see it most clearly. What is the most memorable
0: or even shocking defector story that you found, or even your favorite that when you meet somebody and they ask you the inevitable question of, like, what do you do? And what's that? And you have to give them some red meat to chew on. What story do you tell them?
2: There are so many stories. And each chapter really begins with a defector story, in part because I didn't want to lose sight of individuals who are navigating much larger forces in terms of political borders and intelligence agencies and really different physical terrains. But each chapter really begins with the case of defection. and. I think that the most interesting ones I have found were the ones in which there is movement not just in one direction, right? So we tend to think of detection as a one-way movement. And this is the way that states really, and this is the way that U.S. really wanted to think about it. This is sort of a one-way exit from the Soviet Union. But the most interesting people, I think, are those who move back and forth. And the one that really stuck with me and stuck with me enough that I, I opened the book with him it, it is Viktor Orishkov, who... Is interesting, I think, because he's someone no one's ever heard of. He's not Mikhail Baryshnikov, the famous ballet dancer who defected. He is a sailor, and sailors are an interesting group too because these are of the Soviet citizens who were cleared the league. This is the category that involves the largest number of people without advanced education, with not always screened by the party in the same way. So he is a young sailor. He is sailing back to the Soviet Union from Romania across the Black Sea. And he jumps ship and he ends up in Turkey. And no one there really knows what to do with him because he doesn't have any identity documents. And he's not someone they've printed before. He's not a known dissident. This is 1958. So it's a high point in Cold War tensions. People have this idea of what defectors are. And he is brought into the U.S. He's debriefed. They think he might have some intelligence because he is on board ships and they're very interested in what Soviet ships are doing, particularly those that are sailing around the world increasingly. He gets U.S. citizenship. He is working outside New York, but he ends up going back to the region. He takes a trip to Bulgaria as a tourist and he's monitored there by the socialist intelligence and they're reporting back to Moscow. They keep tabs on people who read. They know who this guy is and so they're watching him and. He has a relationship with a waitress who's working at a restaurant in Bulgaria and they're sort of reporting back And But no one really knows what he's doing. And then he goes back to the U.S. and lives for a few more years. And it's not until 1973 that he goes to the Soviet embassy and asks to be taken back to the Soviet Union. And there's a whole debate about this, but they kind of had to take him back and they claim this as this big success. And then two years later, he wants to go back to the U.S. And he does. And I thought it was just really interesting because it really challenged what I thought I knew. This is not a high-ranking or a public figure right. this is someone whose celebrity is completely wrapped up in the fact that he jumped ship in this dramatic way that entered the headline. This is also someone who's doing something that would be quite normal throughout human history, which is sort of going back and forth to the place where he's from. And he's somehow able to manage this, even though by the end, neither side really wants to take him in. And I think that's what's also interesting, is that you think about defection as this battle where, you know, at all costs, the Soviets will return their citizens, or the U.S. will do whatever it takes to get people to freedom. But in fact, by the end, no one really wants to take him in, and the U.S. side is basically forced to do so because he still has some claim on U.S. citizenship. But they're very wary about him, and they really want nothing else to do with him. And I think this speaks to one of the things that came up in my research that surprised me. I knew about the competition in some ways. It's the competition for migrants is the big part of the story. It's the part that stands out because usually. In most cases, migrants are not fought over, right? They're they're not fought over by the state they're leaving or the state that they're going to. But also there's a sort of a growing, I would say, collusion is the term I use in the book, because neither state really likes the spontaneous migration. It produces defectors who are not what the U.S. is looking for, right? It challenges efforts of states to regularize movement. It sort of forces the hand of the Soviet Union or the U.S. to, to take people in that they're kind of wary about. And so over the course of the Cold War, you have, I think, a growing cooperation and collusion between the U.S. and the Soviet Union trying to limit spontaneous migration and not stamp out defection altogether. There are still some really important cases that, that are happening in the 70s and 80s, but to sort of stop everyday people from using this as a pathway to getting where they want because this was a program set up to channel movement. And to control migration flows in ways that benefit states, not to empower people to move however they choose.
1: Well, the story of Viktor Arezhkov brings me to my next question. What was the experience of Soviet citizens abroad once they defected? Maybe the information that you gathered from intelligence reports and those psychology reports. I mean, obviously, uh, at the beginning, probably there was a lot of hype. A lot of visibility, a lot of publicity around that. But once that kind of like settles in, what was their daily experience of living as a defector, say, in the States?
2: So there's a lot of different experiences. And I definitely tried to listen to the voices of these people as much as I could hear them, as much as I could find them, because sometimes they changed names or they did not want it to be found. But I think you're right. There is this initial celebrity status that they seem to have. Uh, That's. Some embrace and some are really wary about, but these are people who literally grab headlines and making the news, they're catapulted to fame, they're getting book deals, they are featured on TV shows and radio shows. And then there's, I think, perhaps some inevitable disenchantment from this, that this is not going to last. And they need to find work and they're expected to find work. And this is a big thrust of U.S. migration policy is the U.S. wants people who can work and they're not going to go work in intelligence and that you probably don't want them working directly in intelligence because there's some sense they might not be completely loyal and they can't always do what they used to do. If you're a sailor, you're unlikely to work as a sailor on international journeys because you might be susceptible for being repatriated. So they can't always work in their professions if they had a profession to begin with. And then you have many different paths after that. And it, it's harder to trace people. So some marry if they're in the U.S. Americans or if they're in Europe, Germans, and start families. And that's kind of interesting, too, because some have left families behind in the Soviet Union. So you have, in some cases, second family. second family doesn't always know about the first family until later on. Some fade into the woodwork and some continue to crop up again as experts in certain things, or in some ways as kind of these figures that are really irritating to State Department officials because they want to be done with them. And the FBI that's responsible for managing the security. Some are very fearful of Soviets following them and returning them. And I, I think that's completely understandable. And some return, right? So that's, again, one of the things that I found that I think after this initial celebrity wears off, some decide to go back. They rethink their decision or they're enticed back. And these people again become easier to trace because they crop up again in the Soviet records. I think in some ways the ones to become anonymous and remain anonymous, although anonymity certainly has its costs, I like to think that there's some sense of agency there and some sense of that being maybe a preferable path, right? To have this so-called normal life where you're not being framed in a political way, where everything you do is not being framed in a political way. And essentially, even the archival record, which makes it very hard for me as a historian. But I think I can see the limitations to these Cold War framings on both sides and the ways in which anonymity might be preferable.
1: I just realized that I asked this question as an anthropologist and ethnographer, (laughs) you know would be able to answer that kind of question by talking to people or by living with them. But yeah, there's so much that you can find in an archive. And finally, just to kind of sum up, you mentioned some of those things already, but I wanted to ask again, like how did writing about defectors change your understanding about the Cold
2: War borders and globalization? This was a kind of a preoccupation of the book was to to not only write about the Cold War, but to think about globalization and also decolonization as these three interrelated processes and the way in which globalization and decolonization was shaped by Cold War dynamics and guided by Cold War dynamics, and the way in which Cold War dynamics responded to these other things. And there's a growing literature on globalization. There's some really good stuff that's been done in our field, emphasizing the international connections that the Soviet Union had through the circulation of culture, of music, of scientific expertise. There's also been some really interesting stuff with the Soviet Union's engagement with international trade, which I find pretty convincing, but less on how globalization relates to the movement of people, particularly non-elite people. And so in trying to think about the aspect of dimension of globalization, And used defection as a way of thinking about that. I really found that globalization was a challenge for Soviet borders. Soviet borders really, I think, responded in some creative ways. So it wasn't just about restraining exit. There were sort of limited openings. And in some cases, you know, I look at a lot in the book, at The Black Sea, which has both these thriving port cities that are open to international trade, international tourists, and foreign sailors. and the coexistence of those spaces with extremely restricted border zones, including the so-called forbidden border zones, where only you know carefully screened local residents and border troop officials could could patch through. And so, I, I really see it as a set of walls, but also of bridges. And the effort is to try to regulate openings in different ways and sort of allow things you want and prevent things you don't want. And I found that you know in the end, although there are these spectacular cases of defection that people are generally held in. And so uh, the border policies through enforcement and surveillance and informant networks really work to prevent a lot of the things that would have facilitated the movement of more people. So for example, there are very few organized human smuggling operations that you would see in most other restricted border zones around the world. There's also, and I think this is getting to the globalization point, Foreign ships in these ports do not want to take people trying to flee the Soviet Union, because if they do, they will lose access to the ports. And so this, I think, shows that you can have this globalization without the exit of people or without the mass exit of people. And in fact, this is not something, again, the U.S. really wants at any point during the Cold War. There's this emphasis, again, on sort of productive migrants, right? Migrants who can be put to use for labor. And so this border regime is in many ways compatible, I think with globalization. And I think it's significant that although the Soviet Union collapses and the borders are really throwing disarray, they're reconfigured when you have internal borders that become international borders, if you have international borders that were closed, for example, the Soviet-Turkish border becomes a, a really important place where trade is happening and people are moving back and forth, but Despite that, you know, you have all the ways in which the Soviet Union sought to govern mobility beyond its borders. So in negotiations on the law of the sea, or in negotiations about the framework regulating embassies of the Convention on Diplomatic Relations, or in the restrictions on movement through the skies, all the rules that were agreed to in the Cold War that largely came as a result of compromises and discussions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, those remain in, in place. Those remain in place, and, and they're in some ways imposed on the rest of the world, on the decolonizing world, the post colonial world of Africa and Asia and the Middle East, because it suits the US and the Soviet Union. And so you have frameworks that really, in some ways, give preference to more established states and also allow states to control people far beyond their borders on board ships, for example or define embassies in certain ways that really put certain things in laws that serve stronger states and leave other things unsaid that also serve stronger states, for example, not allowing a diplomatic asylum as a right, which a lot of states in Latin America wanted, but making it at the discretion of the receiving embassy, which suits stronger states that can protect people. And so because of this, while there are no more widespread restrictions on exit of the kind that you had in the Soviet Union, there are a lot more rules. And restrictions governing human movement in these liminal spaces at sea, around embassies, on airplanes. A lot more of those today than there were during the Cold War.
0: I actually have a question that I thought of while you were talking, and this is about the border in the Cold War imagination. Because if I remember correctly from the map that you have in the book showing where defections occurred, and you just mentioned a couple of them too, that a lot of them are a lot more than I thought, or I, even, I didn't even know, but a lot of them are occurring in the USSR's underbelly, right? It's southern borders. Like, Batumi plays a role in your book. You mentioned Turkey. Stalin's daughter, of course, famously goes through India. But in the Cold War imagination, and this is symbolized even by the book cover, is the Berlin Wall. Right? Most of our understanding, or at least a popular understanding of defection, occurs from the east west border of Eastern Europe and Berlin in particular, rather than, say, what you've seen, which is the kind of underbelly of the USSR. The question is given that, should we alter how we understand borders and how we imagine the Cold War? Does defection make us rethink where these borders are of contestation?
2: That's a great question. And it's one I think I'm still thinking about. But definitely after the wall goes up, the focus of defection really does shift. Turkey becomes the most common destination for defectors because this is a NATO ally. And so people who can make it to Turkey, they're going to be protected, which is not true, for example, of people who fled into Finland who would be returned. So this becomes really significant. In some ways, Berlin is a really important focus. And it is, as you mentioned, on the cover of my book, which is of someone in the act of defecting, which really made for a great image because it captures that moment. There's so few images of defection in process, right? Most of it is sort of someone at a press conference later on, and that's rather sterilized. It's a wonderful photo. But it's rather unusual, right? And in some ways, if we're sort of thinking about the types of Soviet borders, Risan asked about the Soviet border or the Soviet borders, plural, right? I think these more limitable spaces are perhaps more characteristic of the types of place that people are moving through. Berlin itself is kind of a liminal space initially, right? People can move back and forth between East and West Berlin. And this is why the wall goes up. The inner german border too becomes really heavily policed in some ways becomes the place that's sort of generating all the technology of border enforcement that's being then used throughout the socialist bloc. But these in-between places are really significant. India as a non-aligned country where Soviets could travel with a bit more freedom the Black Sea area, which they did not want to completely close off, as I mentioned, because it was such an important place for trade and international engagement. And then sort of thinking about this as a worldwide issue, cases of defection in, for example, in, in Burma, Myanmar, that are playing out, cases of defection playing out on the seas, which are sort of in international waters away from established states. So I think that's is really a much bigger portion of the world, obviously, than just focus on Berlin in some ways, I think, more characteristic of the types of border settings that people encountered around the world during the Cold War.
1: That was Eric Scott. Eric Scott is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Kansas. He's the author of Familiar Strangers, the Georgian Diaspora and the Evolution of Soviet Empire, and editor of the Russian Review. His new book is Defectors. How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens built the Borders of the Cold War World, published by Oxford University Press. You
0: know, going back to our previous conversation in the intro.
1: It actually makes sense that I talked about Georgia. <laughs>
0: yeah, it does make sense. And and I was gonna, just going to ask you, did you feel like a familiar stranger, maybe, while you were in Georgia?
1: Did I feel? I, I don't even know how he understands familiar strangers.
0: Ah, yeah, I highly recommend the book. It's really interesting because it, it actually deals with the reverse of what you were saying about the Russian community and the sense of like Georgians who live in, say, Moscow. I mean, even Stalin, there's some great chapters on Stalin and how Stalin like imports Georgian food <laughs> and stuff and water and uh, the Bajomi water or whatever it's called. Yeah, so it's like they're strangers because they're not Russian, but they're familiar because they're still part of the.
1: Oh, I definitely felt like a familiar stranger. I could relate to everything that came from the Soviet period. Like it was recognizable. I even went to, so I was working at the library in Tbilisi. It's the National Georgian Library, I think it's called. And I walked in and immediately I felt like I'm, I could be in Tomsk, I could be in Petersburg, I could be in Moscow, just, you know, the old dusty staircase and all these old ladies at the-
0: The Garderobe.
1: The (laughs) Garderobe. And then just the, the reading hole with all the busts of, you know, <laughs> Karl Marx and others. It definitely, like, a lot of the things were recognizable from something that I haven't even experienced, which is odd. You know, it's
0: interesting. One of, I think one of the questions we didn't ask, Eric, and we should have, but we also covered so much is, can there be defectors today? Like, if you're Russian, can you defect, quote unquote? You know, if you're against the war... I guess maybe if you're a high official, they might describe you as a defector.
1: That's where I was going with my question about like if there are any similarities with what's going on today. Because a lot of the people who like say flight mobilization, their whole like point to seek refugee asylum is to say, Hey, I'm against the war. I don't want to be part of that war. I don't want to go die fighting my brothers, Ukrainians. And it's like the reason to seek asylum. So I think in that sense, it is ideological. Like he was saying, like ideology is the main kind of like, it's the flight of choice. Or if you're like, say a lot of my friends were against the war. So they went to demonstrations, direct action, like all those like street protests. And so then all of them fled in March February. And that was like a choice. I don't want to be part of this country. I don't want to be collectively responsible for what Russia is engaged in. And that's why I'm choosing to move away.
0: Yeah. Even based on what Eric said in the interview, from the Russian side, a lot of the rhetoric and the treatment is the same. Not closing the borders like I mean, sure, they made it difficult for people of certain categories, but the way those people who left are talked about is similar to the way defectors were talked about. But from the other side, from the Western side, that language is absent.
1: Yeah, because in Russia, like they talked about as traders they talked about they they actually like recently they tried to introduce this bill that would renounce their citizenship so people who left at a certain period
0: take property
1: yeah they can take their property they can take their away their citizenship they will lose all of their like rights or maybe even an opportunity to go back
0: so from that side it's kind of <laughs> it's a re- it's kind of a you know a repeat and then from from the western side it's a different it's, it's inter- I, I, Those kind of differences are interesting in how, you know, on the one hand, we have a lot of talk about a new Cold War, a Cold War this, Cold War that. But as I like to say, it seems like a Cold War on the cheap in the sense that there isn't that investment in all of these institutions, you know, for better or worse. I don't know if it would be a good thing, but, but nonetheless, the way that this quote-unquote new Cold War is conceptualized, even though the, I think there's a lot of attempts to cosplay it. There isn't the same kind of face-off in ideological terms as it was, you know, during the Cold War. Well,
1: I mean, it seems like the U.S. doesn't really see Russia as a major threat the way that they saw the Soviet Union so... They're not as invested, but Russia is. That's why I feel like there's a lot more of that language in Russia right now.
0: Okay, well, as you know, I'm your host, Sean Gillery,
1: And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova.
0: And I should mention that this episode, like uh, past several episodes, is edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at PodCuts Editing. And uh, if you do need some work on a podcast or any kind of audio work, Please consider Daniel's work. He does a great job for us, and this is why we've partnered with him. His expertise is consistent. He's really good about meeting deadlines. So if you need some audio work done, please head to podcutsediting.com, and even more so, Daniel will give your first edit for free. And the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Again, if you want to help us out, you know, to pay Daniel, to pay Rusana, uh, please consider becoming a patron. And if you can't kick in a few bucks every month, at least help us out by sharing it and telling people you know to listen to the podcast. That's a big help, too. So until next episode, bye.
1: bye. Bye.
2: А потом её встретим, чтоб не убежали.